Welcome back to Repeal of the 20th Century. Today I have Dr. Patrick Newman with me. Do you want to introduce yourself, doctor? Yeah, sure. So my name is uh, Dr. Patrick Newman. Uh, I'm a professor of economics at Florida Southern College. I'm also a fellow of the Mises Institute. I have edited two more of Murray Rothbard's most recent uh, works published after his death, The Progressive Era, which came out in 2017, then uh, Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5 which came out in 2019, and I'm also the, the, the author of uh, Cronyism, Liberty Versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849, which came out last month. So I've got a, got a copy of it right here, right? Cronyism, uh, and so I'm very happy to be on the podcast to talk to you and to talk about the book. Yeah, and I, I really wanted to have you on um, ever since I saw the lecture at Mises U this year about the similar topic, and as well your your topic, uh, uh, the lecture on progressivism as well. Both of those really spoke true to me, and um, we're both covered topics that I don't see covered a lot, especially with the book. The book covers, of course, 1607 to... Uh, it's 1846? 1849. 49, yeah. And that's a topic in uh, a place in history that doesn't have a ton covered about it that's about the topics that you cover. A lot of when of covering of that era in America is almost all about the revolution and the early building of the government um, with Andrew Jackson's presidency and then leading up to the Civil War and kind of... Uh, America under that lens. Not really a much about, you know, the economic states of the country. And, and the only book I can think of that covers that at all is, is again, Murray Rothbard's book, The Progressive Era. Um, or, sorry, not The Progressive Era, my bad. Uh, economic Thought Before Adam Smith. Uh, it, is That's the only place I see that cov era covered, but it's not covered in depth. So I really found it interesting that you... Um, wrote a book about this and I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, where, what, what was the inspiration for really looking at this er particular era? Yeah, sure. So in the fall of 2018, uh, Hunter Lewis, he's a uh, donor of the Mises Institute. He asked me to write a book on the history of crony capitalism in America. And I, I was very happy to do so. Uh, I said, I was working on, conceived in liberty then so i was wrapping up that i wanted to start working on that when i was done with that when i got done with conceived in liberty in the spring of 2019 i started to work on uh this history of uh crony capitals in america <clears throat> and i decided from relatively early on in the beginning i decided two things one i didn't want to use the word crony the phrase technically i guess crony capitalism i wanted to use cronyism this is somewhat of a the a little bit of a discussion, I guess, or a debate. I, I don't like to, 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 to denigrate capitalism by linking it with cronyism. I just prefer to call it cronyism, capitalism, a completely separate system. Also, because I think a great deal of cronyism is not only uh, regarding laws related to the market, but also laws related to politics and elections and, and things of such of that nature. <clears throat> Uh, the second thing I, I, I decided was that I wanted to sort of write, at least initially, a book only on kind of early America, so ending before the Civil War, kind of covering that. One, I had all the knowledge 
fresh from Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty. So I pretty much had up to the early 1780s, and I knew the story Rothbard wanted to tell in the succeeding decades. So I decided that, well, I would do that. Um, why I concentrated on this period was because this period in early American history before the Civil War is really the only time when you see these mass movements in favor of liberty and against cronyism, particularly either the anti-federalists, but more uh, more prominently the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Jacksonian Democrats. So you saw these uh, – they won elections, and they actually passed substantive laws, particularly the Jacksonians, that's just, that, that really whittled down on special privileges, right? So because we think of cronyism, I'm talking about special interest legislation that hurts the public overall. So this is why I concentrated on this particular period, and I basically worked on it for the past year and a half, and it was pretty much done with the project before the summer of 2021. But that's really the basic uh, story behind the book. Yeah, um, and I, I certainly think that it's it's an important thing to look at. I mean – um, Jacksonian Democrats, I know, are becoming a bigger topic in in the liberty community as a general, especially with this debate going on about what should be the strategy to achieve liberty and a lot of people looking back. Um, I know you did a podcast recently with Tho Bishop on um, Pete Quinones, who I had on here, um, his show, about that very topic. Um, but I kind of wanted uh, to get from you a kind of spark notes version of the book um you know just kind of running down what is the main idea what are the main arguments and what are the implications of those for today yeah so i i explain as i described earlier the book is a history of cronyism so these special interest policies trying to explain why cronyism increased a lot during certain periods, maybe why it slowed down in other periods, or outright declined, etc. The spoiler alert is that cronyism increased. You know, it was, it was it, it, cronyism at the end of it in 1849, uh, you know, had grown since 1607, but it wasn't a linear increase, so I try and explain why. I use this theory that I call the liberty versus power theory, which really came from Murray Rothbard to describe this trend of cronyism. And so basically the liberty versus power theory has sort of three main components. The first is that, at least in, in the situations in which it applies, history is a battle between the forces of liberty, who, which are against cronyism, against special privileges, anti-central banking, anti-foreign intervention, free trade, pro-free market, anti-government debt, blah, 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 and the forces of power. So these are the forces of cronyism basically in favor of the opposite. So when power takes control of the relevant political machinery, we can expect special interest privileges to go up, which is in fact what the you know what happens, right? So when Alexander Hamilton is in charge of the government or the Whigs are in charge of the government, we would expect special interest legislation to increase. Um, on the other hand, when the forces of power are in control of the government, we would expect special interest privileges to decrease, right? If they have an ideological and a monetary incentive to reduce cronyism, and there's enough of them, enough of that force, we would expect cronyism to decline. Um, that's the first component. The second component is that power corrupts. This comes from Lord Acton's sort of phrase that uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the, the forces of liberty are in control of the government. They're actually only able to moderately reduce cronyism because they get corrupted by power. 
When I say corrupted by power, I'm referring to they have an increased incentive to cronies. They say, well, we've got an election down the corner, you know, right around the corner. We have to, uh, you know, solidify our support for that. We got to give out these, you know, these favors to these groups. Uh, well, we don't want to, we don't want to go totally hardcore against the system. We just want to have the right people in charge. Blah 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 blah. And so inevitably, they start to support their own increases in power, right? And then the third component is that reform is difficult precisely because power corrupts, right? This is the issue we see it today when people say, "I'm going to reform Washington," right? I'm I'm be Mr. Libertarian. I'm going to go. I'm going to reform Washington. It'll be great. And then, right, nothing ever happens. Okay. In a sense, we would say, well, you get corrupted by power. You realize the incentive structure you face, and then you just start to basically bend to the political winds, so to speak. So I use this theory to explain the history of special interest legislation, special privileges during this period. And I argue that, well, when the, you know, the Federalists or the National Republicans or the Whigs were in control of the government, cronyism increased, which is what happened. And when the, uh, the Jeffersonian Republicans or the Jacksonian Democrats were in control, cronyism only moderately declined before it started to increase again because of the corrupting nature of power. And this explains really the history. The, Demo the Jacksonian Democrats were more successful than the Jeffersonians, but they still unfortunately got corrupted by power, particularly the allure of expanding the territory, moving out west. Uh, but that's the basic sort of uh, uh, little elevator pitch for the book, and you know, I, I think I'm pretty pretty successful in my in the goal that I set out to do at the beginning of the of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, just based off of that, I I would certainly have read the book. But uh, the more I uh, the more I know, and the more I like read from the book or hear about you talk about the topic, the more I get interested and incensed into like looking at this period as a as a piece of learning not just for how we got to where we are but how do we get out of where we are you know and i mm -hmm. think um your your especially your talk with O bishop and and uh peter as i mentioned earlier on the jacksonians and on uh political power is you know kind of very crucial to uh, lessons for libertarians to learn so where I would like to take that is kind of just what do you think that there is a way to kind of replicate what we saw with the Jeffersonian Jeffersonian Republicans and the Jacksonian Democrats, but minimize the harms of, you know, that the, the, the power corrupting or do you think, um, you know, their their approach doesn't work at all? Well, so I think that that's a great question. I, I think the 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 goal to reform Washington, I think, is, is the ship has sailed, so to speak. If it was hard to do so then, it's harder to do so now, and that's because the country's only grown even bigger, right? <clears throat> really, the uh, sort of the running theme in the book is that I say one way that would have stopped this cronyism, or at least really weakened it, that was actually somewhat viable in many people to discuss this throughout American history was to actually break up the government, to have these separate confederacies or just to have more states' rights under the existing constitution or the articles, which would have really sort of stopped the centralization of power and hence cronyism in Washington, D.C. Because if you try to reform the swamp or if you try to drain it, so to speak, it's, it's simply not going to work. Um, but the 
the the their, their strategies of, of at least being more pro decentralization more nullification or if outright like threatening secession or at least trying to work trying to create what i had called an empire of liberty or what jefferson excuse me had called an empire of liberty um <clears throat> again just promoting more decentralization that's really the best way so saying oh we're going to elect a libertarian president to washington or we're going to do something with the budget in congress that's that's not really going to work um and, you know anymore it worked very briefly for the, for the the republicans and the democrats but um not not anymore but promoting things like uh, again greater states rights over drug legalization over ma vaccine and mask mandates uh etc that type of fighting at the local and state level is actually something that we can learn from the past because that's the thing that's most likely to work all right it's trying to actually um not make it such a winner take all in washington but to sort of spread out the power uh among the states because not because power in the states are good but because if you spread it out it's going to be easier to kill so to speak mm -hmm. yeah and i would agree that that's kind of um the path forward, and I think a lot of libertarians are starting to come on that um, that train, and it, it, at the very least, we're seeing a major shift to it in, in the conversation, not just in the liberty movement, but I think in right-wingers in general. I mean, we just saw um, the, the whole national divorce rhetoric, which while it's fizzled out a little bit, it still comes back in these small bubbles that I think increase each time it comes back into conversation. Um, and I think it, 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 your book coming out at when it did is very, you know, strategic and going to be helpful, especially if it gets wider circulation and if, um, we can get more people to read it, which is my hope here, yeah. uh, by having you on. But I also think, you know, I think it's very interesting looking back this far because something that I think a lot of people don't realize is, how little um, accounting we have of this far back. So I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, where where are you pulling a lot of this, you know, information and and um, about this era and looking back so we can formulate the ideas that you're presenting in the book. Right. So that's um, I always I appreciate this type of question because it's about like the actual research itself. But I'm yeah. Like, not too much. You know, people need to know the blood, sweat and tears I put in this right? <laughs> labor theory of value. Yes. Ah, you know, I'm, I'm against the labor theory of value unless it comes to academic work. That's very, very that's my one deviation. But no. Um, yeah. So this I um, for this book, I relied primarily on secondary sources, which is already published literature. Um and this was really not just among like libertarian literature or stuff Rothbard wrote, but uh, I, I've looked. I mean, you look at the bibliography. There's there's hundreds of books basically of of looking into all right various biographies of leading politicians, of leading businessmen, uh, the history of particular types of industry in the United States, like canals or railroads, all sorts of information I basically gleaned from history. Uh, ec you know, economic history, just regular history, American history, uh, and so on. Primary sources, it would have been way too monumental of a task. I didn't have the time to go to the or the money to go to you know archives, and it would have been a lifelong work uh, at that point. And there's pretty much enough that had been done, I think, that I you know, and I, I was happy with you know what what I was able to um, to find. So uh, that's basically where. 
uh, I was mainly just reading books. And really, when it comes to reading, when it comes to writing or doing any sort of research, um, uh, you know, of, of your own, it really comes down to you have to read a lot and you have to be able to sort of process an intense amount of information. But that's what I that's what I did. And you, one of the things that I look so if you look at like a biography. And you read something that you think of Supreme Court Justice, uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court John Marshall, famous Supreme Court Justice. You're like, oh, okay. And then you got a biography, and it says something. John Marshall's younger brother James married the daughter of Robert Morris, who was the wealthiest person in the country at the time. I'm like, well, wait a second. All right, and then they go on to something else, right? I'm like, well, wait. <laughs> this is actually the most important thing. Like, this is what I want to read about, not about his early life, right? So you have to be able to read and be like, wait. That looks interesting. Now I got to explore that path, basically, and it's a, it's it's a it's a painstaking process, but it's thoroughly enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think that's interesting, uh, a kind of thing to talk about, just research in general, and kind of looking at these things because I think a lot of people forget that you don't you don't need to just go to libertarian sources to hear this information. You can extrapolate it from other sources, and usually you end up making the best. Um, findings and conclusions from that is is sources that are not libertarian at all i can say um kind of a personal experience and extrapolating from that that's an example um exactly of what you're talking about actually uh was in a supreme court class i'm taking you know we i i hear the professor talk about um well, this Supreme Court justice was actually went to the same university and even dated the chief justice at the time uh, or uh, dated the chief justice when they were both in the university. And then they both happened to become Supreme Court justices and happened to vote most of the same way. And I think um, that concept of we see a lot of special privileges and a lot of, you know, intersecting between the the powerful and elite in this time period has only gotten bigger it's just um i think it's it's more well known now and i think it's interesting to go back and and look and say well this isn't a new phenomenon this is actually an old phenomenon and if we realize that we can learn from it so i think something about the book that i i find very interesting is that there's a lot of people when they talk about oh, how bad capitalism, just to use the term they use, uh, how bad capitalism was, was the late 1800s. You know, we saw, we, we that's why we needed the um, monopoly busting of regulation. And obviously Rothbard and the Mises Institute, and um, I think even you have done many much work on saying why that's false. But I think you highlighting... He, in earlier period where we saw that where it could arguably be said was just as bad or worse um, is interesting and I kind of wanted your opinion and what you thought if the period that, that you looked at is similar, worse or better than that period that everyone talks about the late 1800s and the early 1900s yeah, so I think in terms of cronyism, there was definitely less cronyism in the period I'm analyzing. At least um, there's still a good amount of cronyism, but there was just enough of an opposition against it to actually fight it and weaken it. Um, government was smaller. State governments were smaller. There was still a relative, somewhat of a balance of power between states and the federal government. After the Civil War, you really see that swept away and – 
you do see more cronyism even in the so-called gilded age a lot of people oh is laissez-faire capitalism well no not quite i mean we had extremely protective tariffs around 50 percent that blocked out foreign competition and led to the rise of the trust or those monopolies you referred to that's why this one sugar magnet henry o habemeyer once said that the, the tariff is the mother of all trusts what he was saying is that if you have the government block out foreign competition, it's a lot easier to form a monopoly in the United States, right? And of course, we um, <clears throat> we, we didn't lower tariffs. We passed the antitrust law, but that's a whole different other conversation I could get into. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was uh, there was more cronyism in the uh, in the late 1800s uh, that you know other things equal would have would have made it worse. Uh, but I one of the reasons I wanted to sort of focus on this earlier period, at least, and this is I wanted to explain, okay, how did we get that? How did we get to a system uh, which could allow us to pass, say, protective tariffs and, and so on and so forth? So the classic story about, well, oh, the late 1800s was this period of monopoly, you know, of all these monopolies and free market capitalism, which led to unsafe food and, you know, bad business cycles and all that stuff. Well, one, those those problems are you know overstated, and to the extent those problems did occur, there's a plethora of theoretical empirical evidence that shows that well, those were actually due to various misguided uh, or crony government uh, regulations. Yeah, and you know, I think I think you're correct in in your analysis of you know what happened in this antebellum uh, era or. Um, this post this post civil war era and i think again it i think it really goes to credit to why this book is special is that it is this period this pre civil war period of america that is not looked through solely through the lens of the revolution i mean the revolution tends to the revolutionary war and then um you know the lead up to the civil war usually dominates this era of um you know, pre-Civil War America, instead of, you know, I think there was a lot of other things going on as the, the book explores, um, especially in the balance of liberty and power and the state's rights that even led to the Civil War in the first place. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you if you think that the current historical perspective on this era is, is deeply flawed or just needs a little bit of nudging into the direction that you go with in the book. Yeah, so I think the modern historical per perspective is, is, is deeply flawed, I think. So, all right, traditionally, you would have the just this, the standard, okay, well, the good guys, the good people, they were the ones who wanted more government intervention. Uh, and, and, you know, the bad guys were the, you know, the ignorant uh, country bumpkins, the farmers like, you know, Jefferson and Jackson and, you know, all, all, all those guys. Right. So you could go to the, you know, the Hamilton good, Jefferson bad. Right. You, you can get into all that, which has all sorts of problems. I would say the truth is pretty much the opposite. Uh, but, you know, now the 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 modern historical analysis has pretty much gotten to the point where it's so, I would say, obsessed or fixated on um, what has been called critical race theory or just the you know the, the interpreting everything through the lens of race gender and class so 
Hamilton's a good guy because he had made some statements that were anti-slavery or could be construed as anti-slavery. Well, Jefferson's a bad guy because he owns slaves, right? And we see this uh, very prominent, you know, in the, in the Hamilton musical and et cetera. And so now, you know, entire movements are sort of dismissed or historical episodes dismissed because there was some connection with slavery or some perceived connection with slavery that might not have even actually uh, been the case. I make the argument slavery wasn't really a major political concern uh, until the question of the uh, Texas annexation in the 1840s really started to rear, you know, oh, you know, rear its ugly head uh, onto the onto the uh, political scene. And so nowadays you're just going to get a dismissal of Andrew Jackson because he had, uh, you know, waged a genocide against, Ind you know, Indians or American Indians, uh, which isn't quite true, as again I talk about in my book, uh, or he owns slaves, et cetera, which is going to completely gloss over his accomplishments or his movement's accomplishments against protectionism, against central banking, paying off the debt. Uh, staying out of entangling alliances and foreign wars and and so on and, and so you're you're not even really talking about the history before you could talk about Jackson's war against the Bank of the United States and say that uh, it was bad you know it was misguided now you're not even going to talk about the war you're just going to focus on uh, the race gender class issues that I had spoken about and I think that's that's not the correct way to look at history because you're not supposed to look at history using your own um, contemporary ethical standards. You're supposed to look at history into what people thought was important back then and to understand why they acted the way they did, which is the approach that I take in cronyism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I think it's interesting that you brought up critical race theory with uh, explaining that and views of history because I think a lot of what historical analysis has become is a lot of applying the contemporary mindset and you know only thinking about the the contemporary implications of history rather than you know what actually happened and discussing those because i think again it, it's a it's a black and white approach that this person is bad because they did not meet these modern criterias and this person is good because they did and it ignores the the issues that I think um, you bring up in cronyism. And again, um, something about the book that I like is is that that fact that and and your lectures on it is that you don't talk about the the things that everyone already talks about when they talk about this period. They talk about the revolution. They talk about slavery and how it led to the Civil War, and that's about it. A little bit about manifest destiny, but otherwise, everything else in history is pretty much glossed over with that fact, and I think that's wrong, and I think that we're missing a lot. We're missing the kind of the economic uh, development of early America. We're missing uh, the power struggle between not only the federal and state government, but local governments and their development of how they act out, because, I mean... The Constitution is pretty bare bones in what it says the government can and cannot do, and I think that was on purpose, as you know, most libertarians who have read things on the Constitution now know, um, whether it be the work of Rothbard uh, in Conceived in Liberty or you know someone like Lysander Spooner. But I think that you know 
there there's developments in this period of time that are very interesting not just to how did they cause the civil war but how did they cause anything that happens today how is it that we have a central bank now after being rejected two times in this period of history and um I, what a, something i wanted to ask you about that is you know really how how did they accomplish this how is it that they accomplished getting the federal reserve back after you know um the first federal reserve expired and then after jackson got rid of the next one how'd they do it again so, well, the initial, the, the, if you think about it in terms of the Bank of the United States, um, how they, so they, they initially passed it in, in 1791 and had a 20 year charter. So the issue is the big thing that's different than the Federal Reserve now that we had with the prior, our first two central banks, is that they only had charters that had to be renewed. So it's not like the Fed was created and it's it, it would literally stay in existence for infinity. Congress could pass, of course, pass a law getting rid of it, rid of it, but they don't have to vote on it to renew it again. So the initial central banks were charter were chartered. Um, they had a 20 year charter because they were basically corporations. They had a license from the government that gave them a monopoly and this monopoly would have to get renewed every 20 years. Right. Uh, in 1811, there was enough strength uh, or enough Republican strength in the uh, in Congress to basically get rid of the uh, the first bank of the United States. Uh, the charter was not renewed thanks to the tie breaking vote from Vice President George Clinton, uh, Madison's Vice President George Clinton, who also happened to be an anti the anti Federalist governor of New York, who strongly fought the ratification of the Constitution. I don't think there's any uh, coincidence there. <laughs> Then the second bank of the United States was basically chartered after the War of 1812. So under the crisis of war, time emergency, uh, the National Republicans. So this this the the, the this big government uh, group in the Republican Party that was basically indistinguishable from the Federalists. That's a whole different story. Uh, you know how they came about, but I can get into that. They again passed a, a 20. You know the same thing, a 20-year charter, right? And then this time, uh, when they wanted to force the early renewal uh, in 1832 of the charter, this is Nicholas Biddle at the Second Bank of the United States. He wanted to do this to basically try and back Jackson into a corner before the 1832 presidential election, when Jackson would be running for re-election. Jackson called his bluff. He vetoed the bill, and he triumphantly won re-election. So that was that. Um, but then starting with the national banking system in the Civil War and then the Federal Reserve System, they basically the, – the, the cronies, so to speak, wise, you know, they, they wised up and they said, all right, we're not going to just keep passing things that have to be renewed. Let's just create a permanent bureaucracy, right? Because all it takes then is just one legislative session to pass all these things, and once something gets passed – it's so hard to remove it. The only way you really can remove it is if, like, its existence sort of lapses and then it just sort of dies, kind of an innocuous death, so to speak. Um, and that's uh, that's what happened in the past. Unfortunately, we don't have access to the same uh, strategy because, you know, things like the Federal Reserve, that's around forever. It's literally – that's in the act. It can stay in existence regardless of whether or not Congress does anything. Yeah. I think that's interesting, too, because I think in analyzing the current Federal Reserve, we need to look at the previous banks, what they did right and what they did wrong in 
getting implemented and staying together and that helps us recognize what's wrong with the current bank and i think it's very interesting that you know the second bank came out uh, up it came about in a very similar way to the federal reserve in that it used a time of crisis um in the case of the second bank the war of 1812 and the first being um, <clears throat> those early economic woes and then eventually World War One, which I think couldn't have been waged without the Federal Reserve. Um, but we kind of, you know, we got these periods of crisis that were used by the, the cronies, as you would say, to establish more government power and establish more power and, and diminish liberty. And I think that really goes to testing the power versus liberty theory and um, where I wanted to go with that is do you think that if we if we continue if that we should try to implement some kind of chartering system with laws in that should be the goal of these these states rights movements is, is to push for chartering that that they have to approve it every few years and would that be a viable political strategy well so i'm i'm against the chartering so the chartering system uh for the the following reason so one people don't necessarily realize this but the corporation the reason why america take corporations actually the initial reason was very libertarian so corporation is a special type of business unit in particular it's got multiple owners they own stock and they have this limited liability, which means they're not liable for the company's debts. The worst that could happen to them is the value of their stock goes to zero. Back in the day, if you wanted to operate a business with limited liability, you had to initially, you know, when it, whether you had to go to the British, British legislature, you know, uh, the parliament, uh, or in America, you had to go to the state legislatures or Congress, particularly for a bank. So you had to lobby to literally just get the right to run a company, right? So it was more or less a license, right? So when we charter, the Congress chartered the first bank of the United States, they explicitly said in the charter, this will be the only bank we will charter in 20, for, for 20 years, right? And this bank will have the privilege of interstate banking, will be the only bank that can do that, right? So it creates a monopoly. And this chartering system, whether it was for banking or transportation companies, et cetera, led to an enormous amount of cronyism because uh, you would basically bribe the legislature to get your charter, and then you would be bribing the legislature again to prevent other businesses from getting a charter, right? So politicians would, uh, you know, politicians and businesses would both benefit from the system, et cetera. Now, what happened is that in the 1840s, thanks to the Jacksonians, on the state level, they, through various constitutional conventions, were changing state constitutions. They passed what was known as general incorporation laws. Many of these in various forms are still with us, which is that if you do want to set up a corporation, you don't have to go to the respective legislature. You just have to file some paperwork. You have to meet some minimum requirements. Not saying I agree with those requirements. I'm just saying it's less onerous. And then you get your corporation, right? So this is a much more free of entry and exit the charter system 
I wouldn't. It, it would really be do like should bureaucracies just live in unlimited existence? And Mike, it would be no. Uh, I think they should be renewed, right? Or there should be some renewal. Related to that is the one reform I do think is somewhat possible on the federal level that I do think there is a fair amount of bipartisan support for. And that is, again, going back to the old Jacksonian and Jeffersonian ideal, it is term limits. It's rotation in office, right? So we need to have some sort of system where the existing incumbents aren't allowed to stay around forever. It's almost like a chartering system for politicians, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. So having that type of framework um, where one corporations, you don't need the government's approval, bureaucracies and the bureaucrats that work in the government, you know, they're not just allowed to exist forever. Once they're in, they're like locked in. I think those are extremely important at reducing cronyism. Uh, we really need to go against the independent bureaucracy or what's become what's what's been now known as the fourth branch of government. Yeah. And I, I think it's very interesting that you brought up specifically about um, corporations and, you know, the the original very libertarian reasoning for being against corporations, because I, I find myself routinely arguing on this position of, you know, there are special privileges, there are kind of crony institution that exists. And, you know, ironically enough, though, some libertarians will give me pushback and, you know, even call me go as far as call me a communist for saying these things, but making this very basic case that I think even, you know, Rothbard will make, Hoppe will make, Mises even made. Um, but I wanted to discuss the, the origin of corporation really in America, because I'm sure the book kind of um, talks about it, because if I remember correctly, it happened exactly in this period. And I kind of wanted to talk about what was the origin of corporations in America? Um, how how have they differed over the years and do you think that really they're they're an in, just another way of cronies to gain uh power over liberty well we're right so I, I think the the actual business model of the corporation i don't think limited liability per se is a problem only when it basically comes to the government so individuals can organize their own business with the 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 function of limited liability people who per, you know, people who invest in the company would see this, or people who would loan money to the company would see it's a voluntary choice. Okay, uh, other companies are free to do the same thing or do something differently. It's really when it comes through the government and when the government basically grants a license. That's how you, know, you can only operate a corporation uh, or only operate a corporation in a particular field if you uh, basically pay money to the legislature. So corporations existed initially that you had companies like the British East India Tea Company, et cetera, that were seen as these crony monopolies. People were very, uh, very against them. Corporations in America really started to pick up after the Revolutionary War in the 1780s, this was because it's, well, we don't have British companies here anymore, or you know, Britain wants to pull out some of their investment, et cetera, so we're now going to uh, create our own corporations. And this relates to a big split among the revolutionaries or the secessionists in the American Revolutionary War, which was, all right, we're breaking away from Great Britain. Do we want to do this because we want a smaller government, or do we want a government just like Great Britain but one that Americans control, right? So do we want – Britain had what Americans called an empire of power. Do we want a American empire of power, so to speak, right? And so those that were in favor of an empire of power said, all right, great. When we have to create our own business organizations, et cetera, you're going to have to go to the state legislature. 
right? You're going to have to uh, appeal to the state legislature. And then there are other people who said the system isn't working. We need to get rid of this, you know, this link uh, with with governments and uh, in business, right? So they really started off in the 1780s um, on the state level. The only corporations really chartered on the federal level were the uh, the first two banks. There were plans to get other ones through, but they never really got off the ground. And the corporation uh, basically developed uh, really in the early 1800s. Now, the chartering system is bad, but one thing I'm in favor of, and many libertarians were, was just granting more charters, right? It's like if you have to have a license to operate an Uber, we would say that's bad. But if the ability, if, if, the, if getting the license only costs $5, Right. It's not the end of the world. Right. Or if the requirements are just going to constantly grant out more licenses. Right. That's basically what they did with corporations. You had enough strength by people who wanted more companies, who wanted more competition to continually petition state legislatures to grant out more and more charters to basically break up the existing monopolies. Of course, the existing companies didn't like that. They said, wait, we paid you know, up to the nose to get these privileges. Now you're taken away, but you know, that's tough, so to speak. You're not guaranteed anything in life. Um, and so this, this corporation model really continued. It rose until about the 1840s uh, when it, there was a big change in that, well, all right, the chartering system doesn't work. We got to get rid of it. We've seen in, among banking too many bank panics, et cetera. We need to go to general incorporation. Right. <clears throat> so these general incorporation laws that allowed businesses to basically just um, uh, set up shop, so to speak, and that this led to the Civil War actually retarded this process, but it was already starting to occur, <coughs> excuse me, particularly among railroads, was that companies would now operate across state lines. You would have an interstate corporation, right? You'd have a company that would be producing in Massachusetts and be selling goods all over the place, right? But so the development of the corporation started off very crony, and while corporations still get many privileges from the government, you know, individual ones, the actual business model has been deregulated over time and much to the better and <clears throat> to the credit of um, Jacksonians. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's very interesting because um, I think like corporations as a general um, – concept in America are something that have, have developed more and more and, and gotten bigger and more emphasis has been placed on it. I mean, it's it's pretty much the only way we see, you know, um, firms that are big being organized now. And I think that has some problematic implications. But I kind of wanted to, to shift a little in our discussion of that to apply the, the liberty versus power um, theory, which is at the you know at the forefront of a lot of the ideas that you're talking about in this book, and kind of discuss that, but discuss it under the lens of the more of the economic side of things, um, not just with corporations, but just the development of the American economy from this beginning the beginning of this period in uh, 1607 to uh, 1849, and kind of I, I wanted your perception on what on if in the economic realm of things in the market if we saw really a move to um as we moved away from great britain um and 
as Great Britain got bigger in presence in America too as well, did we see this shift towards liberty or did we see this shift towards power? Sorry for the for the viewers. I've been I've been <laughs> battling battling a cold. It's um, but you know I, I should I should be expected to make a full recovery. So so don't worry too much. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So as the economy transitioned, well, really the growth of the economy is in a sense due to the relatively quasi free market situation. You know, free free market environment that we were able to create. A lot of people would say this comes from the Constitution. So. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm like Rothbard. I take a very negative view on the actual original Constitution. I say it was a, sort of a, it was a very big government document. They intentionally had made things very vague regarding necessary and proper general welfare clauses, etc. This is why anti-federalists fought it. But the Constitution really only became the limited government document that we all know and love and that um, really facilitated the growth of the American economy in the late 1790s with Thomas Jefferson's uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, Kentucky resolutions, as well as sort of the overall spirit of 1798. Because what happened is the anti-federalists said, all right, we lost. The Constitution's in, uh, been created. <clears throat> the Bill of Rights that we wanted is it was not uh, passed. It's very weak. Uh, so what they decided to do is they decided to strictly interpret the Constitution, saying that, well, we're going to um, basically read into the Constitution of a lot of thou shall nots, right? So this is the this is the goal, and Jefferson jumped on board, and this is this is what really led to the growth of the economy after, because in the, in the 1790s you have to you have to understand what was going on. So Hamilton had created a Bank of the United States, created a central bank. Tariffs were around 30 percent. They were sort of veering towards protectionism. He had assumed the federal and state debts, which was benefiting debt speculators who created this permanent debt. He had instituted regressive taxes on, uh, you know, on farmers out the West, and he had used uh, the military to suppress a rebellion. Uh, he had expanded the the frontiers, um, <clears throat> sort of using government strong arming. He was in, involved. He was no longer Secretary of Treasury in the late 1790s, but he was Inspector General. He was basically the most powerful person in the military aside from george washington who is nominally retired and he was engaged in sort of a quasi war with france and trying to get president adams to in declare outright war against france or to at least to get congress to do so uh, so then we could invade louisiana uh and south america etc this is all stuff alexander hamilton wanted to do uh of course none of that later stuff is discussed at all in the play i think there's uh, some sort of connection there <laughs> and what happened was it was really this Jeffersonian. Oh, the other thing also is that uh, the Federalists had passed the Alien Sedition Acts, basically uh, with deporting, uh, you know, alien uh, immigrants and suppressing free speech, with literally zero um, acknowledgement of the of the, the the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, right? Which shows how little those mattered. It was really only until you had this strict constructionist interpretation of the Constitution, you know, that has been carried down most prominently by say like ron paul or you know uh, later people now uh that really kind of led to the the growth of, of liberty in the in the market economy right so it is linked the the america's capitalist development is linked with um basically who was winning in the battle of cronyism 
Yeah, I I think I would agree very much with um, these assertions um, and this view of the early American period, because um, I think a lot of pe a lot of libertarians want to very much look back on the American Revolution with you know a lot of nostalgia and and idealism about it. Which is good, you know, the American Revolution helps plant a lot of ideas and extend a lot of ideas that have made the basis of libertarian thought. Um, I, I don't, th I think a lot of Rothbard's work would not have been possible without it. But I think also that there is a, a too much optimism about the Constitution and um, a lot of the founding fathers themselves, Alexander Hamilton, of course, um, has an entire musical about how how great he is, but um, I think kind of it, to to look at it is, or sorry, I think what you're getting at, or to summarize what you're getting at with this early period is that very much it was the um, more liberty sided, that being the anti-federalists, Jeffersonian Republicans, and then the Jacksonian Democrats, is that they they did a lot of making do with what they had. Um, the Constitution kind of put them in this strict little box of how they could, uh, you know, continue to fight for liberty and in several ways made them kind of win out to power and in the later parts of their presidencies, especially, um, you know, with Jackson, um, you know, people will always criticize him for uh, the treatment of Native Americans and um, I think what I'm trying to get to with that is in today's in today's world, where can we kind of see this? How how can we take the lessons from the book and kind of apply them to uh, the modern day strategy and the achievement of modern day goals? Yeah, so uh, similar to what I mentioned earlier, I think the real strategy is to uh, try and apply it on the you know state and local levels. So to 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 go to try and um, <clears throat> really kind of uh, fight to reduce cronyism at the state and local level, or at least to bring more power to the state and local level, where it will be relatively easier to handle. That's kind of really the, the best sort of advice uh, strategy I have in, in, you know, now in terms of, uh, you know, I, I think we see this more and more where things such as null, terms such as nullification are becoming more um, <clears throat> acceptable or at least nullification, not using the word nullification, but just saying some sort of resistance or whatever. That, I think, is really where the, the, the battle is because, again, as I mentioned, reforming Washington is, is, not, going to, is, is not going to work. Um, and so you really want to focus on the local issues, and you also want to focus on never losing sight of the goals. So there, there's a, you know, the radical impetus often gets watered down just for some short-term political gain, and that's very ephemeral. It doesn't last, and this is something that people today need to kind of understand I, I do think as much as you know, I obviously am a big libertarian and I support you know focusing on <laughs> politics current events and in the here and now <clears throat> I do think there is somewhat of a tendency to get swept up in sort of the current 
battles, so to speak, like of what's going on right now, or how can we achieve change in like, you know, with this one thing in one, you know, in one month or in one year, and that's all great. We should be focusing on that, but also just note that, you know, very often it's not going to turn out to be anything. And, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to lose sight of sort of, sort of your overarching goal, which is, you know, really I'm in, I'm, I'm in favor of allying with whatever political movement you think's best you know, would facilitate your goal if that's, you know, Republicans, uh, you know, and so on. But I'm also, you know, you want to make sure that you're still a libertarian and that you, you, you adhere to those ideas because once you forget that, then you're no different than everyone else. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's very much a long game that we have to play um, and that, you know, we're not going to see immediate results. Um, you know, I, I, personally and have you know somewhat of a pessimistic view but like i i don't see our libertarian utopia to for lack of a better term even happening within my lifetime i could see things getting better i could see things getting uh, i could see places getting better you know movements like um the free state project in new hampshire things like that i see things getting better uh, you if we really go out and work for these goals but yeah, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen in a month or a year or even maybe even a decade. It's a very much a long game that we have to play and um, we have to see these goals through and we have to be careful about, you know, when we're allying ourselves with other people that we don't become less libertarian. We try to make them more libertarian. And I think mm -hmm. that is an important thing to um, be doing. And I think that's what a lot of people are trying to do. But um kind of as a last kind of thing so then we can wrap up um, I wanted to ask you if you let's say a, a hypothetical sequel to this book um, that you wanted to examine another period um, looking at cronyism and the liberty versus power um, liberty versus power theory what would what would be that era for you and why you know or oh, that's a I I love I love that question. Uh, if there's enough demand for the book, I would like to really continue it. I'd like to go up to the present day. Probably I'd have to do that in two more books. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, why'd you have like this multi-volume work? Why didn't you just have one book? And it's like, well, yeah, why didn't I, you know, um, why am I an economics professor? Why am I not like a hedge fund billionaire? Right. <laughs> um, one of it is you kind of have to understand the, you know, the history and you have to go through the actual process yourself because a lot of this work hasn't really been done by previous people before the other is you want to make sure you're sort of explaining things and then last you know although the present is of course the sexiest time you really want to make sure your history ends at a you know certain point because if i had this big history of crony cat cronyism when i was starting and the book ended in 2019 like i was supposed to like like it was originally supposed to a lot of people would be like what you know, it wouldn't even matter anymore, right? Like if it, you know, when a book ends in 2024, right? And then it's 2026, it's like, all right, well, that's already old news. Uh, I would like to write a book basically from 1849 to 1949. So covering the Civil War, covering the Gilded Age, the Progressive Era, going up to and a little bit after World War II, when we saw this prominent American empire, really this global empire. I don't know if I'd use the liberty versus power theory. I probably would uh, jettison it not because I think it's wrong it just doesn't really apply to that era where progressively there was less and less of an of a, of a libertarian um, power so to speak or mass movement you didn't have 
the Jeffersonians or the Jacksonians again. You had a little bit of a resurgence with Grover Cleveland, but it's so sort of flickering as to not really be, you know, enough, right? And so then it would really just be kind of a, a brawl between various special interest groups. And my main sort of focus would probably be on big business and the, the corporate privileges they were trying to get and, and, and so on. So that's that's ideally what I'd like to do. And then I'd love to have another book kind of going from – you know, the World War Two up to the present day, whenever that is. Uh, but that's, you know, that's farther down the road. Right. Yeah. And I'm certainly excited to see those, too, because um, I think it would be interesting. And I think it's interesting that you said you would you would jettison the liberty versus power movement, because I would agree that, like, you know, the Civil War really is that end of that mass application of it, um, you know, practical application of it. So yeah, I find that very interesting, and I, I, I hope to see those. I, I mean, of course, I would love to see more work from you in general, but I'd love to see those specifically as well. Um, so I think we're going to wrap up, but uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to plug? I know, of course, the book, and plug that, please, and I will make sure to put a link in the description where they can buy it, and also a PDF form, um, you know, if they... If somebody doesn't want to, you know, shill out the money, but uh, if they, but please shill out the money, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so unfortunately, we don't have. I think the Mises Institute will put it online. I'm not sure. Um, so there is no online p. There is no PDF copy okay. for online circulation yet. Uh, we are working on an audio book, but the actual book, Cronyism, it can be purchased on Amazon or it can be purchased on the Mises website. Uh, if you want it autographed or something, it could be, you know, uh, like I have, I, you know, and that that's that you can do it through the Mises website. But so that's really the main thing I have to plug right now. I'm working on other projects, uh, some of them besides cronyism, but none of those are out yet or really nearing completion. So I'd say you can look at cronyism. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Patrick Newman. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, that's pretty much that's all I got. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, uh, again, make sure to put links to where they can buy cronyism. Um, please buy it. I, I highly recommend it. Um, as well as your Twitter, just so uh, people can follow daily updates, especially for those new projects. Because um, me personally, I know I'm very interested to see them. And I'm sure other people are, especially after watching this. All right. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Have a nice day.